Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. I've always loved the Beatitudes and the wider Sermon on the Mount because I think they really truly do give a for dummies guide of Christianity and just being a human. It's kind of, it's got all the like just choice elements there for living your best life. Um, Jacques, Jacques Philippe gives a great um, quote that the Beatitudes one might say, the Beatitudes one might say are not only the most profound revelations of the mysteries of God, but, that, but also a complete treatise on spiritual life. They show what we are called to be as Christians, what it, mean, what it really means to live the gospel. They describe true human and spiritual maturity, a portrait of Christ. They're also a portrait of the mature Christian in Christ, a son or daughter of the Father who is free in the Spirit. They sum up the most perfect realization of human existence, a pathway to humanization, They are also a way of fruitfulness, showing us how to bear fruit that lasts, how to spread love and inspire others to true life. So blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5.9. Before we even get started on on the message of blessed are the peacemakers, let's, let's jump back half a century. Firstly, in the fir- well, before that, in the first century Near East, where Jesus is kind of giving this uh, sermon, peace wasn't really a thing. Peace didn't exist the way that we would know it. And it probably hasn't really existed there f- since, if we're honest. Um, so let's jump back half a century. Juli- Julius Caesar, are we familiar? We know Julius Caesar? Okay, well, he just got stabbed a bunch of times, and I'm pretty sure he's not coming back. Um, the Republic is in disarray. The provinces are groveling. There's corruption in the outlying territories. Neighboring empires are weighing in on the action from all sides. Things aren't going well for the Republic. In pre-Roman Judea, there was political insecurity. There was resentment of the current Hasmonean, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that, Hasmonean expansionism. They were the Jewish dynasty of the time, had been there for about 100 years at this time. Um, and they'd been trying to recreate, recreate the promised land. And through expansion, um, which led to economic depression. And so there was a lot of pol- political insecurity in the area. And so through some, some po- politics and backdoor dealings, a murder or two, Herod the Great comes onto the scene as the client king on behalf of the Roman state. Now, he's very popular to the Romans because he's really good at collecting taxes. Collecting taxes and getting rid of bad guys, or at least bad guys in the eyes of the empire. Uh, bandits, things like that which are bad for trade, things that don't allow the economy to flourish. And he's good at building stuff. A lot of public works, um, which are also good for the economy. Across the Mediterranean pond, we've got Gaius, Gaius Octavius. He is the great nephew of the great Julius Caesar. And after Julius has been assassinated, 
Gaius Octavius, along with two of his buddies, Mark Anthony and Marcus Lepidus, kill all the assassins of his great uncle and take the Republic in a three-way split. Now, that doesn't work out so great. So Mark and Gaius kick out Marcus, and so there's just two left. And while he's on the power-grabbing train, Gaius kicks out Mark as well, um, becoming the last man standing in a Roman Game of Thrones. He calls himself, he, he changes his name about four times. He goes from Gaius Octavius to Gaius Julius Caesar, um, as he, once he becomes adopted by Julius Caesar. And then he goes on to add uh, Divi Filius, or son of the divine, as a way to kind of, because Caesar, oh, Julius Caesar had been divinified, deified, deified, and there was now an emperor cult, and so he wanted to associate himself with that and get respect from the soldiers and to get their political kind of buy-in. Um, he calls himself Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus, Com and that could be translated as Commander Caesar, um, Commander Caesar, son of the divine, or Conquering Caesar, son of the divine, bringer of peace. Um, Augustus brings in an era of peace. Pax Romana, the Roman peace, peace through conquest, peace through, if you don't like it, we'll just uh, crush you and bring you into us. But that is peace though. Economy flourishes, um, roads get built, the empire expands. Augustus goes through dramatic enlarging of the empire. Through diplomacy, he creates a buffer region of client states, um, like Judea, for instance. He makes peace with the Parthian Empire, who are the remnants of the Persian Empire. He reformed the Roman system of taxation, developed networks of roads with an official courier system, established a standing army, established the Praetorian Guard, effectively his own secret service, created official police and firefighting services for Rome, and rebuilt much of the city during his reign. This begins the time known as Pax Romana, or Peace of Rome, approximately two centuries lacking in any large-scale conflict. Any large-scale conflict, that is. That doesn't mean that there's an end to violence. This peace is peace through conquest. You either join or you get crushed. And all this peace costs a lot. Roads don't come cheap. So we need to get taxes from somewhere. Now skip forward half a century, and Augustus is no longer the emperor. His son Tiberius has taken over. Taxes are high, and we venture back to Judea. Herod the Great has been succeeded by Herod Antipas. Herod the Great, the one that tried to kill all the babies to try and get rid of Jesus. And then Herod Antipas comes later. He's the one that had Jesus on trial. Herod is the regional elite, working for the Romans, collecting taxes and building stuff. But not all is well in the realm. Building stuff generally means that you need skilled labor as well as slave labor. As with most empires, this generally comes from all the various regions connected. Now, in Galilee, uh, the cultural and social mix was at flashpoint, with multi-ethnic populations deteriorating relations with the Gentile population of the adjoining Phoenicia, of adjoining Phoenicia rising religious feelings, growing messianic expectations, and the establishment of nearby Roman cult colonia of two legions with a very extensive territorium, needless, needless to say, a very complex situation of social, religious, and political forces in Galilee. Now, if we jump over the Sea of Galilee to the region of Gerisa, for the last, for the last years of the Common Era, around the first century, the first-hand experience of a lot of those people 
um, of a pre-Roman time was one of doubt, one of chaos, one of political instability. It was warring kingdoms. It was this king fighting this king and then getting betrayed by that king and then uh, ransoms being paid. Um, The elite were kind of vying for power. And this was going on for centuries. Then comes Rome. While the Pax Romana, on the other hand, was experienced as political stability, increasing prosperity, and the beginnings of urban transformation. In neighboring Judea, there was this idealized memory of the Davidic Golden Age, of Jewish independence and expansion. There was rural resentment of Greek-influenced practices, powerful messianic and apocalyptic beliefs in the eventual restoration of Jewish independence and the destruction of Rome and hostility among the elements of the common people to urban elite compromise with the ur- uh, <laughs> hostility among the elements of common people to urban elite compromise with the imperial power all of which eventually found expression in nativism fanaticism and rebellion against Rome twice in the space of 70 years this is where we find ourselves when we enter the story of the beatitudes We've got all of these different opinions, all of these different political standpoints. You've got the people that lived in the chaos before Rome and thought, no way, we don't want to go back there. We want Rome. This keeps us safe. You've got the people that have grown up in Rome and they're kind of like, I don't know, they're the elite. They're making money. They're making good business. So they're thinking, you know, keep things the status quo. And then you've got people maybe 50 years on who are feeling the boot of empire oppressing them. And they don't like it, obviously. And then comes John the Baptist. Oh no. That's August that's Augustus. He was gonna be up there while I talked about how great he was. Because he had that he had a bunch of statues made that pretty much just said, I am the son of the divine. <laughs> Let me bring peace to you. Now, the religious situation in Judea at the time in Galilee was that you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the, it was a very hierarchical system. And John the Baptist came from a line of priests, but instead of taking his priestly kind of position in society and using it, using it for the power that it kind of gave him the opportunity to step into, instead he goes off into the wilderness and he preaches, make way for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's someone that could have used all of that power, all of that position for his own benefit, but instead he is speaking to the common people. He is wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and honey, which is the cuisine of the impoverished in that time. And people are listening. People are listening and the powerful don't like it because they think, well, Herod in particular is thinking, well, if people are listening to him and going on every word that he says, what if he all of a sudden decides hey, actually, maybe we should get rid of Herod. And we know how that works out for John the Baptist. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus comes onto the scene, healing people left, right, and center, teaching people, people listen. People come from all over to listen. Those three regions I just talked about before and about their kind of political, social kind of climates. Um, 
Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed. He healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Decapolis, which is that area of Gerisa or one of those city-states, Jerusalem, Judea, and across the region of the Jordan followed him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of the divine. If you're first century from the Near East, Judea, Galilee, you've probably heard about peacemakers or peacekeepers. You've heard about Pax Romana. You've heard about the Roman peace. You are very accustomed and know Roman peace and what that means. You've also heard of a guy that calls himself the son of the divine. This would be quite shocking that Jesus is blessing peacemakers for they'll be called children of the divine. What's he on about? See, the problem is that Pax Romana, the Roman peace, doesn't work. It doesn't work. It requires more and more inputs to function, more armies to quell more rebellions and riots, more taxes to pay for those armies, and then, more tax, and then those more taxes drive up dissent and anger in the populace. So you need more armies to quell those riots, more expansion needed to get more taxes, more slaves, more armies. It's a never-ending vicious cycle of violence and control, and it leads to more exclusion and more enemies. And Jesus knew that. Christ knew that when the, that knew that when the divine encouraged the Israelites way back before the kings, um, encouraged them not to have a king, but to trust themselves and to trust their relationship with God. But instead, as we know, in Samuel 8, 5 to 7, they said to him, they said to Samuel, you're an old man and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. I think it's so easy to judge Israel at this point in time. It's easy to judge them and say, why would you, why would you want your king? Why not just have God? Um, but we do it every day. We do it every day. It's so much easier to relegate decision-making to some seemingly higher authoritative decision-making body to wash our hands of the responsibility of decision-making, to wash our hands of the, the stress that that brings, the messiness that that brings. We'd rather have the church make the decisions for us, or the government, or scientists, or academics, or celebrities, you know that double denim isn't a good choice, but Justin Timberlake made it look cool, so you might give it a go. You know intuitively that the cheap things that you buy are made at the expense of poor labor conditions and environmental degradation, but you rely on the fact that a reputable company made it so they must have checks and balances. They must. So you trust them and you make that decision. You know that action A, B, or C, whatever that is, is not necessarily a good choice. But you know what, X, Y, and Z says it's okay, so I'm just going to listen to them and I'm just going to be okay with this decision because someone else said that it's okay, so I'm just going to do it. Even though intuitively, in our hearts, in the, deep, in the deepest part of our being, we know 
because the Spirit of God dwells inside us. In the face of conflict, to make a conscious, autonomous decision is extremely difficult. It brings with it emotions. It brings with it messiness. It brings a little bit of chaos. This is what the people want when they come to Jesus. What they want is a nice, clean-cut answer. Jesus, can we eat this or not? Jesus, can, what days can we work on? Can we stone her? Who can we interact and socialize with? But as we know from reading the Gospels, Jesus often doesn't answer their questions in the way that they, at least not in the way that they wanted them answered. He asked questions which dug a little deeper, made the listeners uncomfortable. He required them to check their heart motives, check their assumptions, and check their, the assumptions of their social systems. He was calling them into something new. He was calling them to live in the reality of his kingdom, to reassess how they identified themselves and others. Identity especially, Caesar Augustus, he called himself son of the divine. Name in the first century was very important. Your name meant everything. The name was your identity. He was saying, if you conquer all your enemies and you become the strongest, you become the smartest, you become the best, you become the most perfect, the most excellent, then you can be granted son of the divine. Whereas Jesus is flipping that on his head and he's reminding us that you were created in the image of God. We already are all sons of children of the divine. We are already children of God. Jesus flips the script on Pax Romana and ushers in Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of the divine. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you will be children of the divine. When asked to walk one mile, walk two instead. When, when someone slaps you, turn, when someone asks for your coat, give your shirt also. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek also. If you see a speck in your neighbor's eye, first remove the log in your own eye before you help them. All of these responses require something of us. We need to be engaged in this story. We can't be passengers. Peace isn't going to just happen. You have to make it. You have to engage with it. Now, what Jesus is saying here is extremely countercultural. This is not the way that they understood peace. Blessed are the strong, blessed are the mighty, not blessed are the weak and the poor. Not blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the peacekeepers. You see, Pax Romana effectively meant peace through conquest. Bring order to the chaos by destroying the chaos. Peacekeeping, keeping the status quo. Peace means the absence of war, the absence of conflict. So let's remove it. Anything that we don't agree with, anything that we don't understand, just remove it and push it away. The world is a scarce place and we need to take control of the resources. This peace is bought by success, accomplishment, security, being right, being in control. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, and I do not give as the world gives. In other words, my peace isn't about external victories. My peace isn't about power. My peace isn't about dominance. Pax Christi is about peacemaking, not peacekeeping. 
There is an inclusion of the conflict inside us. There's an inclusion of the messiness, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain. There is forgiveness in this piece. There is love. The world is a plentiful place with abundance of resources. We don't need to fight over them. That is Christ's peace, where there is sharing, where there is breaking of bread. Pax Christi is about wholeness. Inclusion of the completeness of the human experience, not repression of emotion, peace in the midst of suffering. It's about Sabbath, finding our true rest in Christ. Now, there's a great uh, Jewish tradition which Jacques, uh, Jacques Philippe kind of points out in his book, The Eight Doors, which uh, a lot of the speakers have been um, pulling a lot of great resource from, and that Sandy has pulled a lot of great resource from. Jewish tradition affirms that it's not we human beings who keep the Sabbath, but the Sabbath that keeps us human by celebrating the fundamental values of life. Without the Sabbath, we are handed over to idols of productivity and are dehumanized. Jesus gives us some beautiful examples, I think, of what peacemaking looks like in the real world context. Um, and it's not about finding a quiet room and finding your center and finding your peace uh, by yourself. Even though finding that internal peace is a crucial element and it's an important part to do that internal renewal. And I think throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always going from external behavioral modification towards internal renewal of our, of our, um, insert, of our hearts the renewal of our hearts. Jesus gives us some great examples. The woman at the well. Jesus broke down cultural, religious, race, gender politics by stopping and asking the Samaritan woman for a drink. This was not okay in that time. This was not okay. That was not a done thing. But he made peace. He brought restoration, and the whole village came to believe because of it. He brought wholeness to that woman at the well. He brought restoration and healing. In the temple forecourt, Jesus broke down some social systems of oppression. The temple forecourt, where he famously lost his cool, was the only place in the temple. I didn't know this until I did this study, but it was the only place in the temple that Gentiles could come and meet with God. This was the only accessible place for the outsider, the other, to come and join us in communion, to join us with God. And there were systems in place to exploit the poor and exclude people. So Jesus took things into his own hands and got very violent with the system. Not towards people, even though those people would probably disagree. Um, but he made peace in the temple by disrupting those systems. I think there's three, there's three kind of things that came to my mind, at least, in reading this and in studying this and going through, that I think Jesus invites us into if we are to work towards peacemaking. Look beneath the surface. There's the classic iceberg picture. You can see where you see the top 10%, and then the rest is hidden behind, below the surface. That image has been used for a lot of things, and I think, but I think it's so true. I think Jesus asks us to look beneath the surface of a situation. If there is conflict, if there's anger, if there's angst, kind of like how Vic said, you know, where's the, the elevator going down? What's, 
what's going on below the scenes here? What's not immediately obvious? Which family rules or constructs are going into this situation with this person that I might be in conflict with? I've got family rules, they've got family rules in the way that we're growing up, and we think that obviously the way that our family does it is the right way. Um, but obviously, as we know, all families have different ways of doing things. What was their upbring- what's the upbringing? What are the beliefs? What are the values? What are the worldviews that govern in this situation? Jesus calls us to look beneath the surface. Not just outside of ourselves looking beneath the surface, but looking beneath the surface for ourselves. What is this triggering in us? Why am I, why am I just spilling up with anger all of a sudden? What, what soft spot has this touched? Which old hurt or old wound has this treaded on that I haven't had healing of that I need the Holy Spirit to heal? I think Jesus encourages us to value relationship over the rules. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He time and time again elevates the relational above the rules. With the woman at the well, he, he elevates the relational above the rules. With the adulterous woman that's going to be stoned, he elevates the relational above the rules. With eating with the tax collectors, with Zacchaeus, he elevates the relational above the rules. The third thing that I think he brings to us is to live in hope. Live in hope. Seeing what could be, hoping for the future. I think throughout his ministry, Jesus is saying, you are all sons of God and daughters of God. You're all children of the divine. You are the salt of the earth. You are that divine spark that's needed to create change. You are the beauty that is in the world. He sees the hope in us when we were yet forsaken. When we were yet broken, he saw what we could be. And he calls that out in us. And I think that is what he invites us to call out in others. He invites us to see the hope in others, to see the strengths, not the weaknesses, not the things where they're failing, but the strengths. Okay, there might be X, Y, and Z down here, these 10 points of weaknesses, But if we just focus on that one strength, I mean, that's something that comes through so strongly in in my social work training is a strength-based approach and how much that just completely revolutionizes any kind of helping profession work. Um, When you focus on someone's strength, all of a sudden, it's as if all the other things just melt away. Um, Viktor Frankl says, when you know your why, you can endure anyhow. And I think, that especially becomes poignant when kind of when it's when we need that hope for ourselves, when we need to look to the future and we need to see how we're gonna get through the day. When you know your why, you can endure anyhow. Jesus' peacemaking looks a lot like divine justice. Bringing things back to the way that they were supposed to be. 
not retributive ju justice, not giving out what is deserved. That's Pax Romana. If they break the rules, destroy them. Make them suffer so that they will never do it again. Pax Christi invites us to restoration, to wholeness, to healing. It invites us to coming together. It looks a lot like restorative justice, putting things right. It's a coming alongside. It's a conversation at the well. Sometimes it's a disturbing of the status quo and a flipping of the tables of all systems they represent that, oppose, that oppress and exclude. I want to ask you a difficult question, but who is your enemy? Who is it in your life that is an enemy? And then maybe an even more difficult question, how have you been an enemy to them? You see, I was having a good chat with a, a friend of mine and he always has this phrase, he says, pray for your enemies and pray for your enemies and help give to those who persecute. Uh, how the verse goes. Pray for your enemies. And then what you'll realize is that they're no longer your enemies. By praying for your enemies, all of a sudden, you start to realize all of those, all of those iceberg moments, all those things that led them to act in the way that they were acting or to do what they were doing. And then you quickly realize that actually they weren't your enemy all along, but maybe actually you were their enemy because all this time you've been kind of backstabbing them and talking, talking nonsense about them behind their back or kind of creating a false narrative about the situation when they weren't your enemy all along, but maybe you were the enemy. And I think how Jesus flips that around is just... How do we enter the Lord's rest, the Lord's Sabbath, the shalom of God, God's wholeness, His peace, in the midst of troubles, in the midst, in the midst of the crashing waves, in situations that feel completely beyond us, Two years ago, I noticed, um, Briar actually helped me notice it. Wives are always great for that. But at the time, um, we were about to become engaged. I was in second year uni. It was kind of ramping up. And all of a sudden, I was just so overwhelmed by stress. So many assignments, and I just couldn't do them. I'd sit down, and I'd read the same page about five times before realizing that I've read the same page five times. I'd sit down in front of a blank screen to start typing, and I'd start type out like my first first line and then I'd kind of go back to read some more and then I just, I couldn't progress. I was stuck. I was on this treadmill. I was just stuck on this treadmill and I wasn't moving anywhere. And at the same time, we were just kind of talking about getting engaged and that was a big life decision. But Briar actually, she gave a suggestion. She said, I wonder if, I wonder if you're struggling with a situation now because we're going into this next step getting engaged, and that, that brings up a grief response. Um, it's been about four years since my father passed away, and that was about two years at that stage. But it probably took until about two years for me to actually start healing and to start entering into that grief process, entering into the grief journey of doing that inner healing because I was just repressing it. I was like, nope, I'm not grieving. That doesn't affect me. I can just keep going. I can just keep studying. I can just keep reading. I can keep doing what I need to do. And I can just leave that there where it is, in a nice, neat little box, festering. When big life moments come up, our wounds come back again and again and again. It doesn't mean that the weight of them stays the same, but it's still that experience. And even 
this week, I was finding, as I was getting ready for the sermon, I was, had that same feeling of being on the treadmill. I'm doing all this reading, left, right, and center, um, preparing everything. I'm getting all these different ideas, but it just doesn't seem to want to stick. And I had to sit back and think, well, when else have I felt like this? And then I realized, well, me and Briar are looking at buying a place, getting an apartment. That's a big life decision that I would have wanted to talk to my dad about. I would have wanted to engage with him with that. When we don't engage with our grief, when we don't engage with our wounds, when we don't engage with the fullness of our being, are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you angry? Are you stressed? Bring it in. Hold it close. I'm going to suggest that it's not possible to find that peace on our own, that is. I even read it earlier this morning. I was just thinking, oh, I never made that connection. How do we enter the Lord's rest? And I said, oh, I don't think we can. It's because I don't think we enter the Lord's rest. We're led in. The way to this rest is through Christ, through his body, the church, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, beckoning us towards one another in holy love, complete love, sacrificial love. Bringing ourselves, becoming a peacemaker then is bringing ourselves and others into this rest. Bringing ourselves and others into the wholeness of our being. Bringing restoration. Restoration of relationships with ourselves. Restoration of relationships with each other. Restoration of our relationships with God. Who is your enemy? Have you tried praying for them? Have you considered some of the ways that you have been an enemy to them? What I want you to think about, I'm going to read the Beatitudes out, and I want you to think about what's lying below the surface for you. If you need to close your eyes, you can close your eyes if that means that you're not distracted, but you don't have to. I just ask that you enter, I guess, a reflective space. But what's lying beneath, below the surface for you? Which relationships do you need to elevate above the rules? Where does hope need to infiltrate? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to think about that as you take that, take that home. What's lying below the surface for you? Which relationships do you need to elevate above the rules? And where does hope need to infiltrate so that we can be peacemakers I think even just, even if you just flip that around, really, for me, what I'll leave with the point is, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of the divine. It's a characteristic of children of the divine to be peacemakers. If you are a child of God and you live in the fullness of that identity as a child of God and everything that that entails, you have no choice but to be a peacemaker and make peace because then you infect others around you to live into their fullness of being children of the divine. You allow people to break through and to live that for themselves. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.